0: Hello, my name is Claire Murray of CM Murray, and this is a Professional Practices Alliance podcast. The topic today is Me Too Law, One Year On. And in this podcast, we are going to cover a wide range of complex issues relating to the reporting, the investigating and the eradicating of sexual harassment in law firms and other professional services practices. We have four expert speakers today for our podcast who are going to cover this topic from a range of different perspectives from the regulatory, the partnership and employment law, the criminal, and also the PR aspects as well. So it's going to be a very interesting multidisciplinary discussion. So, Ian Miller of Kingsley Napley is a partner specialising in regulatory and public law. He advises law firms and individuals regulated by the SRA on regulatory investigations and disciplinary proceedings and he frequently advises on sexual harassment allegations against law firm partners. My partner Sarah Chilton CM Murray specialises in employment and partnership law and she regularly advises firms and partners on the crossover between partnership and employment law such as disputes about whistleblowing, discrimination and particularly, over the last year, sexual harassment investigations and issues. Nick Vamos of Peters and Peters is a partner and he is a criminal law specialist. He has a very high level background in the CPS and these days he focuses particularly at Peters and Peters on high profile and sensitive matters, particularly allegations of sexual misconduct against politicians and against other individuals in public life, including partners and law firms. Gus Saletto at Byfield Consultancy, he's the managing director there and he is a leading PR advisor to law firms on the communication aspects of these very sensitive and business critical issues such as regulatory investigations, harassment investigations, etc. And he specifically advises clients on how to communicate in relation to Me Too issues and investigations. So we are going to jump straight in with Sarah Chilton. And Sarah, can you just give us an overview an idea of kind of what does what are the sort of range of sexual harassment behaviors do you typically see in professional services firms and are there common
1: triggers for those behaviours? We see a wide range of behaviour and in fact I think probably one of the most important things to point out is that the behaviour is such wide-ranging types of behaviour that many people might not actually think that everything within that definition is really sexual harassment. And that's probably one of the key issues that we come across is people not identifying harassment for what it is and assuming that, for example, where there has been no physical contact, there cannot be any harassment. I think what is useful to think about when thinking about whether something's harassment or not is one whether there's any sexual element to it so it doesn't have to be sexual behavior it can be behavior or harassment because of sex or related to sex I think that's important to think about so it may be someone is subjected to harassment of a certain type where they wouldn't be subjected to that harassment if they were a man and that can be sexual harassment. I think one of the key triggers is a power imbalance and I think that's also helpful to think about when trying to identify harassment because I think sometimes it's more likely harassment might have taken place if in fact there is a power imbalance and it is a cliche but if you take an example of a senior man in a workplace and a junior woman in a workplace that person might feel for example harassed if they are asked to go for a drink or to spend time outside of the work alone with that senior male person whereas a man in that junior role might not feel the same way and that can amount to harassment but the power imbalance comes into a lot of the cases that we see and it's something that I think is often overlooked and can be easy to overlook for those in power. They're often not even aware of that power imbalance, and so having an eye on that is quite useful. Other common behaviours, I don't want to be clichéd, but alcohol does play a factor. Probably a large proportion of the cases that we see have alcohol as a role in a number of harassment situations. It's not just your kind of clichéd Christmas party, something happens um, and and a harassment complaint is filed the next day. There can be much more subtle harassment which takes place because people have had something to drink and their inhibitions are lowered. Other things that contribute can also be certain pressurised situations, late working situations, people working late at night away from their families, perhaps under a lot of stress and pressure, relationships and lines can become blurred and general social events at work or in the workplace can also have an impact. Mm,
0: thank you.
1: So Nick, Nick Foss, when does...
0: The type of behaviour that Sarah's talking about tip into criminal conduct?
2: Well, there's no offence of sexual harassment. Broadly speaking, we're looking at three categories of crime that might be committed in the type of scenarios that Sarah is talking about. So, first of all, you've got sexual assault under the Sexual Offences Act two thousand and three. So that has to involve intentional, non-consensual sexual touching, and the toucher does not reasonably believe that it is consensual. Secondly, you'd have harassment under the Protection from Harassment Act of 1997. So that would be a course of conduct, not a single event, that causes alarm or distress and which the perpetrator knows or ought to know has that effect. And then thirdly, and probably uh, less frequently, you could have malicious communications. That would be sending indecent or grossly offensive communications with an intent to cause distress or anxiety. So just looking at those in a little bit more detail, for sexual assault, intent It's not negated by voluntary intoxication. So in the type of scenarios that Sarah's talking about where people have had a bit too much to drink and inhibitions have been lowered, that doesn't affect the law's analysis of whether you intended what happened. So intoxication is no defence. Sexual, again, picking up on what Sarah was saying, depends on the circumstances. Somebody being a bit handsy in the office is not the same as being handsy in a strip club where you may have invited somebody to join you. So the circumstances, the context in which the touching takes place can make it sexual when otherwise it wouldn't. Non-consensual, there you're talking about does the person have the freedom to consent, in other words they're not being coerced or otherwise pressured, and do they have the capacity, intoxication again, was somebody so drunk that they didn't actually have the capacity to consent to what was happening. Then reasonable belief on the behalf of the perpetrator, often you'll have people saying they misread the signals. Um, This is the Nigel Evans defence, the deputy speaker of parliament who was acquitted of a number of offences where he just said he misread the signals and made a clumsy pass well he was acquitted in the criminal court because uh, he said I reasonably believed that the touching from there on was consensual harassment I'll just deal with that very quickly it's a course of conduct has to be on two more occasions there's no time limit between those so for example if the same pattern happens at every Christmas party between the same two people that could amount to a course of conduct even though it's one year apart Alarm or distress, uh, where you can be harassed without being caused distress. So if you just talk about recognizing what is harassment, if somebody doesn't visibly burst into tears and run out of the room, um, then that doesn't mean that they're not being harassed. So society's norms about what harassment looks like are changing, Mm -hmm. and the criminal law would be uh, mindful of that in deciding whether somebody is being harassed. And then finally, under harassment, you've got the ingredient that the perpetrator Knows or ought to have known that their conduct was having that effect. So there, you're focusing on ought to have known. If people have had training about what type of conduct and behaviour is acceptable or not in the office, then it'd be quite difficult for them to say that they uh, didn't know and ought not to have known that what they were doing was capable of causing harassment or distress.
0: Okay, that's incredibly clear and helpful. And just bringing you back for one second to the alcohol point, just because it's such a perennial issue, where you know there's been an offside. And both parties are drunk and then there's an incident which involves sexual interaction mm-hmm. and then the next day one of them says actually I didn't consent what's your analysis of that and you're they're both drunk where do you go with that How, what's the analysis of that?
2: well uh, putting aside the evidential difficulties that those type of situations present because often there aren't any other witnesses to what took place there might be witnesses who can um, state that both parties were drunk when they were last seen leaving together for example but nobody knows other than those two what happened thereafter the drunkenness of the alleged perpetrator as i said is is irrelevant to his or her intent um, so you simply cannot say i wouldn't have acted this way if i hadn't been drinking well as far as criminal law is concerned tough um, the drunkenness of the alleged victim can be crucial because if for example, there's evidence that he or she was so incapacitated, legless had to be carried out, clearly didn't know what was going on, had sort of lost all control. It doesn't mean you have to be comatose. Mm-hmm. It just means you have to be in that state which, you know, you, you know it when you see it in other people, that they really don't know quite what's happening. They just need to be taken to bed and looked after and, mm-hmm. you know, given a, a neurofen in the morning. If somebody's in that state when they are last seen and then they make a complaint, there's going to be a problem for that perpetrator to say that this person had the capacity to consent at the the time that they say they did.
0: Okay, that's great, thank you. So we're just going to turn to Ian Miller now, SRA guru, SRA god, I think. Um, (laughs) Thanks, Claire. What um, regulatory notification obligations, so what type of conduct is going to trigger the obligation to notify the SRA and when and how?
3: Well, the SRA obli- reporting obligation relates to uh, essentially serious misconduct. So, And that falls on the individual who is the perpetrator would have a personal obligation to report. The firm, when learning of the events, um, may also have an obligation, well, would have an obligation to report if it satisfied the test. And then also the, the complainant theoretically has an obligation to, to report, although the SRA have made it fairly clear it would not criticise someone in those circumstances for not reporting it. Mm -hmm. So looking at it from the firm's perspective, what it needs to establish is does this amount to to serious misconduct and therefore does it pass the threshold that we think we need to report it? And the practical difficulty that often raises at an early stage is you don't know the full facts, so you don't know whether it will or not until an investigation has taken place. Mm -hmm. And in, in those circumstances it may be certainly worth considering whether you tell the sra that an issue has arisen and in broad terms what it is tell them that you are investigating and effectively say we will be back to talk to you in however long you think that investigation is is going to take place and we'll provide you with a report then so your obligation to report promptly means that the sra knows about it mm-hmm. but equally um the SRA knows you're dealing with it and if if they're happy to proceed on that basis they can await what the full investigation concludes um, after however long that takes
0: There is this sort of frequent debate as to whether or not you are obliged to report until the point at which you've made sort of factual findings. Are you strictly required to do it at the end of the investigation when you've kind of reach to f- some factual conclusions or should you be doing it at the start from a risk management point of view
3: I think the SRA d- does get concerned around firms carrying out an investigation coming to the conclusion it hasn't can't quite work out where the facts lie and therefore effectively saying we don't have enough to report because we don't know what the answer is right. so you've got to be careful that you don't effectively through absence of sufficient information or evidence come to the conclusion you don't need to report it what you do need to do is get to the point where you you have worked out as best as you can what happened and then decide you know is that reportable or potentially are there gaps in the information that we can obtain that the SRA would be able to obtain and do we need to alert them at that stage and certainly their guidance suggests that's what you should do.
0: And Presumably, the SRA wouldn't be best pleased to hear about it first through rule on Friday that there is an ongoing investigation. Absolutely
3: right. So it's back to demonstrating to the SRA at an early stage in the process that you are on it and you are investigating it, and that they will get whatever they need to get in terms of of what happens, so they can decide what steps they need to take.
0: Okay. Thank you. So, Goss, we're at the stage where a complaint's been made to a firm. Um, or they've become aware of a potential sexual harassment incident, and they're considering an investigation. So are there sort of internal, external comms, things that they should at least be thinking about at this stage? Because the risk of leakage at any point, as soon as you start that investigation, is quite significant.
4: Definitely, Claire, and I think we um, we have to look at it in the context of how Me Too has and will increasingly shone a spotlight on by, by the media if we look at the legal media for example there are almost weekly tweets going out from at least two of the main legal titles asking for people who have been victims of harassment in law firms to come forward oh, really? on a confidential basis um, so there, there is a real heightened awareness um, and uh, as we know when information gets out uh, it has a tendency to run a course of its own and therefore law firms must be increasingly be prepared to communicate at the various junctures within an investigation. And this is where planning really does come to the fore. When we speak to law firms, whether they have an incident or not, we, we, we are encouraging them to look at how they would communicate around an issue like Me Too, like they would communicate uh, around any other crisis. And good crisis PR tells you that you should rehearse these situations, whether they're live or not. Um, because it enables you to take into consideration all of the different people you might need to communicate with, including internal staff, trainees, um, the regulator, um, clients, very importantly, um, and within that, you know your values as a firm and your culture are going to be impacted and your reputation is going to be impacted, so all of those things have to be thought about very carefully. Preparation is key.
0: Great, thank you. Um, So, Sarah, I'm not going to have time in this podcast to talk about the real substance of conducting an investigation and kind of the issues, but what are some of the sort of the key issues that, key sort of challenges for HR and also for frontline partners who are sort of receiving these complaints, the, the kind of things that typically come up and cause difficulties
1: for firms? I think one of the first ones is identifying what the complaint is and whether it's harassment and and what it should be treated as so the firm will probably have a policy for grievances and a policy for harassment but often a harassment complaint won't present itself in an obvious grievance it won't necessarily say that it's a complaint on the tin um, and sometimes it's for that frontline person to identify what they're dealing with I think once they've identified that they're dealing with a complaint of harassment I think there are a few key things that I would just flag one is retaliation and making it clear to people not to retaliate The other is investigation, making sure that you have an investigation process. If you don't have one, establish one. Consider whether or not that investigator should be independent outside of the firm or internal. We're seeing a huge rise in people using independent external investigators. They have the benefit of not having any preconceived concepts about the people who are involved. And equally, people might feel more comfortable talking to an external investigator because they don't feel that what they say might be used against them later down the line. And another thing would be support to be put in place for both the alleged harasser and the person who's made the complaint and also the potential victim depending on whether that's one and the same person sometimes the complaint will come from a bystander and witnesses all those people should be offered support in the way of counselling or in some cases they will need more specialised support from a psychiatric mental health perspective and then I think I'd say confidentiality is also critical um, for the people involved in that investigation. Uh, as well as then the other bits we've mentioned, communications, think about that, bring in the PR people um, that you either work with externally or internal PR advisors. And think about the criminal aspects as well and are you dealing with a criminal situation and then also the regulatory aspects. So I think if you have a checklist which goes risk, retaliation, regulation, investigation, support, suspension, criminal, communications, confidentiality, so you need to remember those <laughs> letters, then you can get there. Is there a snappy mnemonic there? Risk. <laughs> specifically
0: so you talk about confidentiality and often yeah. people do come to the firm and they say look if, they may not be going to HR they might just be going to a friend or a, a partner and saying look I don't want to make I don't want to be difficult I don't want to raise a complaint I'm actually just want to tell you something and they tell you about an incident and they'd say under no circumstances should you tell anyone mm-hmm. you shouldn't investigate it you shouldn't do anything with it because if you do I will be very upset and I'll probably leave so I mean, that is such a common yeah. issue. So, how? I mean, you know, it's like the worst of all scenarios. The firm knows about it now, but, feel, but it's been told it can't do anything about it. So what do you tell firms in those circumstances?
1: That's a difficult situation and one in which I think there is a bit of a divergence in what we should be doing and what we should be recommending to people. I think the safest approach is for people who are likely to be exposed to these frontline reports for them to be briefed appropriately and I would say that that briefing should include the fact that they shouldn't be giving cast iron assurances around confidentiality to the person making the complaint because the problem is a firm learns something, an allegation they can't unlearn that, they still know that they may have regulatory obligations that are triggered by having that information and they cannot therefore, in our view I don't think be expected to ignore it because the person who's reported it doesn't want anything done about it So I think to avoid then that really difficult situation where you have someone threatening to potentially bring a claim against the firm for breaching confidentiality, you need to look at your policies and think whether or not you're giving assurances of confidentiality in those policies and whether in fact you want to be in a position to do that. Now, I do also know of, of organisations who have anonymous reporting hotlines and they would prefer to just know and know that if it's anonymous that might limit their ability to investigate. But I think in an ideal world, not having that... Assurance of confidentiality in the first place gives the firm more scope to do what they need to do to comply with both their legal and regulatory obligations. That being said, if someone is absolutely adamant that they don't want anything done about it and the firm takes the view that, in fact, it's appropriate in the circumstances to maintain that person's confidentiality, they may still investigate based on the information they have, keeping that person's confidentiality, but they need to be aware that that may limit the action that they can take against any alleged perpetrator because that perpetrator will be able to have rights to natural justice to know the allegations against them and so you may not be able to for example expel a partner on the basis of a process where there is a confidential accusation being made. Thank you
0: and it's not unheard of there to be circumstances where HR totally understands the significance and the importance of undertaking an investigation but senior management in the firm may be slightly slower to to that point, decision point. And is there anything that you think, maybe this is one for Ian, what suggestions can you make to help HR ensure that law firm senior management really take these issues seriously and investigate promptly and do what's needed to be done for for regulatory and also health and safety? You know, obligations that they have to the individual complainant and also to the wider workforce
3: I think the short answer to that is that uh, as far as the SRA is concerned in the frame will be the, the individual perpetrator but also the firm and the SRA will be asking questions around what was the culture um, systems and processes within the firm before the incident happened so effectively what has the firm done to, to prevent things happening in the first place, but also how did they react to it, Um, how did they investigate it, was it a proper investigation, Um, did they deal with it at the level that would be expected by the SRA, and therefore if the, the feeling within the senior management is that they're uncomfortable with the investigation because they're not quite sure for various reasons that they want to go in that direction. The, what they will then have to talk to or tell the SRA is not going to be a, a good story around how they dealt with the incident, um, and that puts the firm at risk, potentially puts other individuals at, within the firm at risk um, of of effectively being the subject of an SRA investigation in addition to the original incident. Um, so, I'd, I mean, I would be very concerned if if a firm wasn't following established HR employment law partnership law processes when an incident like this comes to their attention. Mm
1: -hmm. It's probably also worth saying that from an individual liability perspective, I think most people might be aware that the individual harasser can be found liable by an employment tribunal to harassment, but equally if there's an action of victimisation, that can bring individual liability with it as well. So if, for example, someone senior determines that they don't want to investigate something because example the person who's accused as is frequently the case is a particularly valuable member of staff or partner then the person making that decision not to investigate could find themselves on the wrong end of a claim for victimization for example the failure to investigate being in itself a potential act of victimization and i think therefore flagging that to senior people who maybe need incentive to buy into the process can often be useful so you touched on earlier about sort of
0: and support for the complainant or potential complainant. Would you just expand on that the sort of things that you see in practice. And then also let's just talk about how you extend protections to the accused for whom this will you know whether the allegations are well founded or not this will be inevitably a deeply stressful situation for them and from their, for their family as well who will inevitably
1: be affected. Mm-hmm. So So in relation to the complainant, then I think it's important to make sure that they have appropriate support in place. They typically come to the firm with a complaint, or it may be that a complaint has been made by somebody else and it's about a different person um, who might be the victim. But for both of those people involved, there needs to be support put in place. Now, that can either be offering of counselling, which might be something the firm has in place anyway, or it may be that that person is unwell. That person might be signed off from work, in which case I think it would be appropriate to get a medical report to ascertain whether or not there's anything more that the firm can be doing by way of helping that person or making adjustments so that they can work from a different part of the office if that's what they want although I should add that in terms of if you're moving people around don't fall into the trap of moving the victim around because that's potential victimization as well and it should be the potential harasser who gets moved around but things like you know practical things that can be put in place might assist it may be that greater psychological help is required so we've had situations where people have had to seek specialist psychiatric help in situations of harassment and and that should be something that the firm should explore. I think aside from the medical side of things it's important to make sure that that person has someone that they can talk to so they'll often be told that they need to within the bounds of regulatory parameters that they need to keep something confidential but I think outside of that, they need to be told that they can appoint somebody to be their buddy in the system, in the process, so that they're not completely alone. And I think that person should be of an appropriate level and seniority. So I think it probably isn't appropriate to say to a one-year qualified lawyer that they a buddy is a senior partner because they won't feel that they can be open um, with that person. So just having some thought around who that person should be, and also whether you let the individual choose them or whether you appoint someone. And really, when we move on to the alleged harasser, the accused, all the same things apply. That person is innocent until proven guilty. These allegations may not be substantiated or they may be substantiated. Quite frankly, either way, they're going to be difficult for that person to deal with. As you say, there'll often be family issues that come into it. And they may be having severe issues with coping with that. They might have mental health issues. They might have underlying mental health issues, which are exacerbated by that process and so similar procedures should be put in place similar support should be offered so counselling further psychiatric health if that's required and also the concept of a buddy is something that we would recommend is put in place for the accused as well so that they have someone who they can be open with and they can discuss things with that person must also keep things confidential but it just gives that person that additional support which could be quite significant and make quite a big difference to the outcome for that Individual's family and their health and wellbeing.
0: Thank you, Nick. So, if you're advising an accused partner and there may potentially be criminal aspects to the allegations, what due process would you expect as a minimum uh, or, or as best practice for that partner going through the internal process and also to ensure that their position isn't undermined in any subsequent criminal investigation? How would you be advising them?
2: Well, I I wouldn't necessarily start with the internal process, um, although there are things that that you would want to look out for to make sure that the principles of natural justice were being observed. I think I would start by um, explaining that the company doesn't have any obligation to report the matters to the police unless there's some imminent risk of danger or some obvious safeguarding issue. Um, So if none of those apply, then the partner shouldn't necessarily fear a criminal investigation that would be instigated by the firm. Of course, the complainant could always complain to the police and then the internal investigation and criminal investigation may run in parallel. Uh, The principles of natural justice for the partner within the disciplinary investigation would, I mean, there's no one size fits all, there's no one right way to do it, but obviously they have a right to be informed of the uh, the nature of the complaint, uh, the evidence against them, they have a right to challenge it or have it challenged. That doesn't extend to any absolute right of cross-examination and in fact most procedures probably wouldn't include that so you know you'd have to manage their expectations as to what extent they would be allowed to challenge the evidence against them Um, an independent investigator as sarah said that's quite common and it's certainly somebody who's got no previous connection with the incident would need to be in charge of the investigation and and many firms are bringing in independent people to do that and the test is always of reasonableness uh, whether the principles of natural justice are being observed if a criminal investigation is also underway, then, of course, the partner would be to decide whether they participated in the disciplinary investigation or whether to do so might prejudice their position in the criminal investigation. Of course, the disciplinary investigation may generate material that would incriminate them more within the criminal investigation, mm-hmm. and therefore they may think that's an obvious prejudice. Um, they may be obliged within the disciplinary context to reveal information about their defense that they wouldn't be obliged to reveal until a much later stage or at all in a criminal case and these would be reasons to ask for example for the disciplinary proceedings to be adjourned until the criminal process had run its course Um, and of course i would remind the partner in this position these outcomes of either process don't bind each other so just because a criminal complaint is not made or if it is it's not taken further by the police it's not any indication that they won't be dealt with uh, and sort of found culpable in a disciplinary context. You, c- you could be exonerated in one context and still be uh, found culpable in the other.
0: Yes. And are there any sort of particular pointers if you were advising the firm and it's aware that there's the potential for criminal proceedings or a criminal investigation due course, are there any sort of tips that you would give them as to things to be mindful of when considering their own internal investigation and not prejudicing yeah. a later...
2: Absolutely. I mean, the starting point is the two processes, criminal and disciplinary, are separate and their purposes and procedures are wholly distinct. So firms should not be inhibited in the way they conduct their disciplinary investigation just because they're covering matters which may form the subject of a parallel criminal investigation. But they must always ensure that they are conducting the investigation properly and documenting it properly. So actually, this is about following your own procedures, keeping proper records, documenting what you've done. And I think the risk of prejudicing a criminal investigation in those circumstances are very easily overstated. They are not trampling over a crime scene, they are perfectly entitled to follow through their normal disciplinary proceedings, but do it properly, document it carefully and obviously if the police are involved you would want to keep in touch with them to make sure that you are not doing anything they have explicitly asked you not to do. Mm -hmm. Um, It is not just of course the partner who may have a reason to ask for the proceedings to be adjourned, the complainant may place more importance on the criminal outcome than the disciplinary one, and they may say, well, I would like that to take priority. I don't want the evidence to be tainted or or become stale because it comes out in disciplinary proceedings first. And the other thing the firm needs to be mindful of, especially if it's a very serious allegation, is is re-traumatising the victim. So if somebody's gone through a very uh, disturbing and upsetting experience and they're going to have to be interviewed by the police about it, Just think about the timing and the sequence and whether it needs to be done twice, first in a disciplinary and second in a criminal context. That's
0: a really good point, thank you. So we've got to the end of our investigation. There are factual findings which tend to support the complaints that have been made uh, against the partner. Ian, where do we go now from a regulatory perspective?
3: Well, at that point, it's likely there will be an investigation report that will go through those facts. uh, a bit relevant documents, possibly witness statements, and there is then a process of taking that and effectively reporting it to the SRA. I'm assuming you're satisfied that this doesn't amount to serious misconduct. So th- that is when the firm will, in detail, tell the SRA what has happened, and, and very much at that point, it's, it's about telling the SRA the facts and leaving it for them to work out what they want to do about it.
0: Along with this investigations with, by the sra typically taking
3: a while it's fair to say that it will take probably after having submitted the report it may take a few weeks before the sra comes back it may ask more questions it, it may want more documents from the firm do
0: it they w- contact individual individuals who participated in the investigation <laughs>
3: they, they may well do as part of their own investigation they may want to contact the individuals and that's something that that um, may need to think about before that happens as to what its duties are to its employees, whom it might have mentioned to the SRA are witnesses in these proceedings,
0: which will then feed through to the Comms handling and the advanced planning of what happens when the SRA, if they do make contact with the individuals involved.
3: W- 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 well, indeed, because I think at that point, you know, there's there's more people will know about the SRA investigation and what it's about. And, and then at some point in the process if the SRA is taking it further forward it will be writing to those who they consider have a case to answer putting to them allegations and asking for a response mm.
0: okay thank you Sarah can we just this could be a podcast entirely of its own but assuming that there are that that the firm finds that there is a case to answer what is it brief in brief overview what is what it is What is it then doing with the partner in terms of putting that case to him officially and putting him through a
1: quasi-disciplinary process? What does that typically look like? First step is to see whether you've got a policy in place that actually tells you what that looks like, because if you do, you should be following that. But a large number of firms possibly don't have a policy to deal with partner disciplinary. Often those policies as drafted might just say that they relate to employees, And if that is the case, trying to set up a fair process is really important. What that process typically looks like is an investigation. So typically that will have already happened. That's why we've got to the point we've got to. The partner would then need to be notified in quite a lot of detail about the allegations against them. So at the beginning of the investigation, that person may not have been notified in details to what was alleged, because in fact the investigation develops and Moves through those allegations, and it may be that at the end of the investigation, the allegations might be framed slightly differently. But before someone is invited to to say a hearing at which they are expected to defend themselves and put forward any aspects in mitigation, they are entitled to know exactly what it is that they are accused of, and with any supporting documentation as well. Now, there may be some thought that needs to be to be put into what supporting documentation is provided. For example, there might be some sensitive personal information in there that shouldn't be provided wholesale to the accused, but on the whole they they need to know what the evidence is against them so that they can respond to it. Following on from that, typically partners will either have to appear before the board of the firm or a management committee or a specially established committee who will hear that case and effectively take the decision as to whether they are guilty of the conduct of which they are accused. And if that decision is that they are, then it's a case of finding out what the next steps are. And that really is a case of looking at the LLP agreement. I should just add that some LLP agreements might set out the process of the disciplinary as well. So it's, it's always important to check what's in there. But typically then the partner may be recommended for expulsion. So it may be that, for example, the management committee or a delegated board might put forward a motion for expulsion to the board or a decision-making body of the partnership. And then it's a case of looking at the LLP members' agreement to work out what the requirements are for that process. We often get asked about the partner's right to legal representation in these meetings. There is no basic entitlement to legal representation in those meetings, internal meetings. But it's not necessarily something that the firm should discount out of hand. It really depends on the circumstances. We generally say from a firm's perspective there's no need to have a lawyer in there the firm typically wouldn't have their own lawyer in there and it probably should be avoided but there may be circumstances in which you might want to allow it and the other question we often get asked about this is should the partner be able to cross-examine witnesses and I tend to say no there's no right to do that they should be able to challenge the evidence but that is not the same as actually cross-examining the witnesses and in fact if you're going to go down that line it's a really difficult one because those witnesses and particularly if that's the victim as well will have their own rights and being subjected to cross-examination by someone who might have harassed them might be a whole new claim waiting to happen and a whole new risk factor for that person. So it's not something we advise. Mm.
0: So then, Goss, say we come to the position where the firm decides it has to part company and there are different ways in in which one might do that and in the press there have been notable examples of the different ways in which that's been executed. Some very public executions um, and others which are much more um, consensual and perhaps dignified for everyone involved. Um, and I just wondered what your thoughts are on how a firm decides what is best for them um, and also for the original complainant. and having regard to you know the partner who is up to this point probably been, you know, a, a good colleague but has been has found to have sort of committed certain um, conduct misconduct so what are the sort of factors that you're taking into account when you're advising a firm how to execute and how to communicate that decision
4: very broadly Claire, it's um, the the first piece of advice or question is you know how do you want to be seen um, as a firm how do you want to be seen um, in terms of your values and cultures post this, this this event in relation to how you treated the investigation, uh, how you communicated it at the appropriate junctures um, with your stakeholders, your, your staff, your clients, um, how you dealt with the SRA, um, and then how firms spend a lot of time uh, and money on their brands and their messaging now, and how they communicate in crises, a real test of do they stand up to those values and culture, Uh, and I think that's a real test. Are you a collegiate organisation? Do you really value diversity and equality? Do you value the input of your partners? Are you compassionate in terms of how you handle difficult situations? All of these things have to be considered very, very carefully. Of course it comes down to how uh, serious the allegation is, and then the subsequent charge, if there is one, Um, and that obviously has to be taken into consideration and also the planning is really, really important. I personally feel that we've seen quite a few knee-jerk reactions by law firms that are, aren't actually in line with their purported culture and how they like to be perceived as a firm externally. And I think if you've planned for these events and you've gone through the scenarios and you've gone through the various timelines and when to communicate, how to communicate, you can take a much more measured and considered approach. Mm.
0: And say the lawyer, Scott Wind or Legal Week or you know, other titles that are available, um, has got wind of that someone's being exited and they're ringing up the managing partner and saying, we've got the story, we're about to publish it. Do you have any comments? What's a, a sensible approach for a firm to take when At they get that kind of call?
4: At that point, I would hope that that firm has a statement ready to go, which has been agreed, pre-planned, rehearsed with their internal comms team. With an external PR advisor, if necessary, and is in line with how they've handled everything to that point. So I I would hope at that at that point the managing partner would be be able to respond in the appropriate way.
0: But let's say they hadn't. Let's say they hadn't had the benefit of your of your support, and that call comes through, and they don't know whether to say uh, no comment or um, it's a private matter. What would be sort of like an on the spot? bit of advice that you would give to, them, to, to the managing partner who gets that call and literally hasn't prepared a comms package yet?
4: Buy time is, is, is so important. Don't give a response straight away to a journalist. If you have been caught so on the hop like that and you ought to be expecting that call, if a journalist says I need an answer now, I'm going to press in a minute, say look let me come back to you in half an hour, don't be pressurised into giving to the response go back and speak to who you need to speak to whether that's your PR advisor your internal management board your HR team at this point in your investigation you should really have a firm wide approach as to where you're going to go even if you are caught on the hop but first, first line is buy time and then come back to the journalist in a timely manner Great,
0: right. thank you we're slightly going to flip on to a related but slightly different topic around NDAs Ian mm. where are we on NDAs right now Well, How does the SRA currently feel, as at today, about uh, NDAs?
3: Well, as far as the SRA is concerned, the position hasn't moved on from their warning notice of April 2018. Their position is that it is perfectly acceptable and proper for solicitors to enter into... Settlement agreements that include confidentiality clauses, which I think is probably yeah, a more accurate description than an NDA. Yeah. But what you do need to be careful about is, is two things. One is that there's nothing remotely that could be construed in that agreement that suggests that, that an individual shouldn't be able to report matters to the SRA or to another regulator or indeed to the police. Um, so you're not interfering with the free flow of information in that regard. And also that you're not overly prescriptive in terms of the confidentiality obligation, particularly around allowing the the complainant to share with members of the family, to get advice and therapy in relation to whatever's happened, to allow them to to properly deal with the matter. Mm -hmm. And therefore you shouldn't be restricting those sort of things either. So those are the particular main areas, but I think a broader issue is... Just be a bit careful, do we need an NDA? If so, what are the proper limits of what do we need to, as, as part of this agreement? Don't get over-enthusiastic about the terms um, and just think carefully about what you actually need from it.
0: Yeah. And interestingly, what we have seen is employment departments in law firms being very alive to these issues and updating their precedents mm. to ensure you know, uh, appropriate carve-outs. But then that not necessarily having been communicated by the employment department to their own HR department, um, in terms of what is then being um, handed out from the firm. So it's I think there just needs to be a, an updated conversation between law firm HR and their employment departments to make sure that they're all on the same page as to the kind of NDA confidentiality language, and that extends not just to confidentiality provisions, but also the you know the, the non derogatory statements provisions and the don't support anyone else in litigation mm. provisions and the clawback of money provisions if you breach any of these obligations. I mean, it, it is more than just that confidentiality clause. Yes. And obviously this is uh, the whole issue of NDAs and the use of them to stifle uh, disclosure of harassment and other sort of, you know, malpractice is under close scrutiny at the moment by the Women and Equalities Committee. There is an inquiry in Parliament and the government is reviewing this very closely as to whether action should be taken to regulate them much more closely.
3: Indeed, so I'd I'd be surprised if within a year or so we didn't have some form of legislation that would impact upon the use of NDAs.
0: Okay, thank you. Sarah, is there a word you'd like to say about what firms, kind of looking to the future proactively, firms can do to eradicate the risk of sexual harassment and also to make themselves kind of ready to so their documentation to to
1: respond as effectively as they can. Firms should think about what policies they have in place. Most firms I think now will have harassment policies in place but I think it's important to think about whether or not they're just paying lip service or whether in fact they are proper policies that can be put in Practice and whether, in fact, they're implemented. By implementation, we mean not just having them written down, but making sure everyone knows about them, making sure people are aware of what's in them, and providing training on the policies, but also on harassment more widely what that is, what the risk factors are. I think that they need to think about whether they apply to partners or employees, and whether they need a different one for partners as they do employees, because often, as I say, partners are forgotten about, and sometimes lots of policies just don't apply to them, and there's just nothing that applies to partners. I think firms as well need to lead from the top, so they need to think about engagement and endorsement by senior staff and management in relation to harassment, so that everyone is clear as to what's expected of everybody at every level in terms of prevention from harassment. And I think finally they need to look at their cultures and think about whether anything in their working culture or their socialising culture is contributing to circumstances that of harassment or are providing breeding grounds for harassment and think there are firms that have considered looking at alcohol consumption at office events and things like that and that might be the way it's going but I think a wider cultural review is probably helpful and also risk assessments thinking about what particular situations present particular risks and trying to deal with them before they arise rather than just having to mop up the situation after something bad has happened.
4: Mm.
3: Can I, and i just add in from my experience, it's culture and governance mm. is is what firms need to think about. The, the nightmare scenario is the, the big billing partner who has done something and there aren't the procedures in place to ensure that that is dealt with appropriately. And that's when, obviously it re- relates to partnership issues and other issues, but that scenario the SRA is going to be very interested in. Mm.
1: I think partners historically have not really appreciated the implications that something like harassment might have on their careers, Mm. and part of that is because it hasn't really been something that's received a huge amount of focus to date, but I think making sure that it's quite clear to partners that, say, a finding of harassment, even a minor finding, might have an implication for their status in the equity, or their remuneration, or their points for that year, and may have regulatory consequences, and really hammering home to these people that there are consequences. And I think only when people sadly realise that there are quite bad consequences to something do they maybe take stock and rethink about something before they do it.
0: Any final words of wisdom to help firms sort of prepare for these kind of scenarios, which will inevitably happen because, you know, professional services, it is just full of people and people have issues and problems and misunderstandings and worse so i mean it, it's it, it will happen it will happen to all every single firm at some point and i just wonder if there's a final word of wisdom from each of you as to what firms can do to be sort of ready for that
3: well i'm going to steal gus's words because it's about preparation it's about thinking about what would happen if that event occurs and planning the the various things that you will need to have thought about in advance be it demonstrating that your culture and your governance is appropriate be it ensuring that you've got the appropriate pr support and all of those things in place so that hopefully it'll never happen but if it does happen you've got something that you can start to implement rather than thinking what do we need to think about
2: thank you i, I would suggest that firms need to appreciate that even compared to 12 or 24 months ago the range of conduct that could be considered as either harassment or criminal conduct is far wider and and is evolving and in a good way so you know when we're talking about harassment we could be talking about phone calls, texts, unwanted visits, comments, things that people just wouldn't even recognise as causing alarm or distress or as inappropriate and now they are so once they understand that there's a much wider range of conduct that could cause them a problem, than as Ian
4: says and Gus has said already, they know what to prepare for.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: I would add what, what are the positive learnings that firms can take from these cultural reviews and these policies that, that, that Sarah mentioned, um, are they clearly being communicated internally, do people feel safe in coming forward to raise an issue, all of these things are actually an opportunity I think for good internal communication. Uh, amongst partners, staff uh, and the partners of tomorrow uh, and ultimately this will have a positive impact on the firm, their culture and their long term reputation.
1: Sarah? I think Ian has very well summarised what I was going to say which is about preparation so I suppose I would like to add about prevention because I actually think there is a lot more that firms can do to try and even prevent these things happening and yes we plan as if it is an inevitability and make sure that we are ready for that but actually training but proper training where people are really taken through as nick says what type of conduct constitutes harassment that wide range of conduct why it's different to what it was like three years ago and what the consequences are and to really make people reflect on what their cultural or issues are within the firm how their conduct might be contributing to problems and really take responsibility for their firm and for themselves thank you
0: my Final worth would be looking at bystander training, which is a you know really gathering momentum, and this is the idea of empowering the people who see it, and yet because of groupthink or because of social pressures or whatever, don't step forward and report it or intervene, perhaps because they don't feel it's safe to do that. So there is training out there, and there's a, a, a lot of academic thought and projects on how you train and empower people who see this stuff, see it happening in the workplace, empower them to intervene, to report, um, and to feel like it's their responsibility to do that, and not actually to reinforce the problem by standing by and doing nothing. So you have been listening to Professional Practices Alliance podcast, Me Too Law, one year on. I want to thank our excellent speakers Ian Miller of Kingsley Napley, Sarah Chiltern of CM Murray Nick Famos of Peters and Peters and Gus Saletto of Byfield Consultancy I think this has been a very interesting and engaging and hopefully illuminating discussion if you have more questions or concerns or you want to challenge something vehemently get in touch with the speakers their contact details will be on the podcast notes um, if you liked this then please share it and rate it on iTunes and tune in for our future podcasts. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much.